Wish I was a mole in the ground. Yes, I wish I was a mole in the ground. As a mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down, and I wish I was a mole in the ground. Well, hi, y'all. Hey. How's it going? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> heavy sigh. Uh-huh. Heavy <laughs> sigh. Silence. That's pretty much that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. Um Brad is I think trying to make sure that the person who just called doesn't call back in the sense of <laughs> unplug the phone. Priorities. <laughs> <laughs> How indie of you. Yeah, that's right. That's how we roll around here. How very indie. Um, So today we are picking up from where we left a couple weeks ago. Um, This is our first two-part episode of Faced Out Podcast. We talked a lot last time about the use of the term indie or independent if you don't want to be so casual. (laughs) Um, And Liz and I had a lot to say about it. And uh, as probably not super surprising. And we had a sense that other people would have other things to say. Uh, Maybe complimentary stuff to ours, maybe contradictory, who knows? So we reached out to a couple people that we know very fond of, uh, Julia Callahan, Hello. Hello. And uh, Christina Rodriguez. Julia, give us a quick intro uh, about, uh, you know, what what you're doing right now and, you know, where your your background. Sure. Um, I am the director of sales and marketing at Rarebird Books in Los Angeles, California, and I helped grow that company. I was the first employee um, and helped sort of build it from the ground up over the past uh, 10 years or so. Um, and I, I started my book career at Book Soup, um, actually the Book Soup discount annex. Um, I worked there uh, when I was a young pup out of college and needed a little extra money. I don't know why I thought it was smart to work at a bookstore to get extra money, um, but I, I did for some reason. And um, I loved it so much. And I ended up uh, running events there uh, for about four years and then uh, moved over to Rare Bird. Uh, so um, I started in independent bookselling. How long have you been at Rare Bird? Um, in, in September, it'll be 11 years. So a little over 10. Okay. So Rare Bird, an independent publisher, let's say. Yeah. Um, a, a distributed publisher. Um, is it PGW or consortium? Or PGW. PGW, okay. Uh, what about you, Christina? I am also a director of sales and marketing um, at a public space, which is a literary magazine and now has an imprint connected to it, um, books, uh, formerly a bookseller. This is only my third week at APS, but um, I was at Deep Vellum Books for almost four years as the general manager. And I did um, basically everything like book buying, events, marketing, all of it. So, and I, well, I guess my, my career into book selling is a little bit, I mean, it was 
delayed. I, got, I didn't get into bookselling until maybe my late 20s. Um, and I didn't really know what independent bookselling was for maybe the first year. <laughs> like you, I wouldn't have been able to define it. But yeah, so definitely not a traditional traditional book entry. I feel like I meet a lot of people who have been in the book game for a very long time, but I found it a little bit late in life. And you were at Deep Vellum from the very beginning of that space, right? Or no? no uh, this, I think the second year, technically, the first year they um, had a different co-owner. So it's also the publishing house, which is owned by Will Evans, and he has four imprints connected to that. Um, and he had a woman who used to be a co-owner, and I started when she was there. So I think technically 2015 is their first year. I think I started in 20, early 2017. So, Julia, would you characterize Rare Bird as an indie or independent publisher? If not, why? If so, why? Uh, and what what makes it so? I mean, that's it's such an interesting question. And I listened to your last podcast to kind of get a sense of what you guys were talking about. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, I've called us an indie press before or an indie publisher before. I've also called us a small press. Um, I mean, I think for me, I kind of come from the indie rock part of, um, you know, uh, defining things as indie, which actually maybe I'm going to totally contradict myself by saying that, like, we don't have corporate money uh, involved with us at Rare Bird. Um, And I think that's kind of, we're not owned by a big media corporation. And that's kind of how I view an indie press. Um, So part of it is the money thing we do answer to investors and we do answer, we answer to people. So it's not like we get to totally do anything we want, but we don't have as much oversight. What about you, Christina? Do you, I know you've not been at a public space very long, but do you have any immediate thoughts about what that, what the term means in the publishing realm? Well, so I actually only had experience with like the nonprofit aspect of publishing because Deep Vellum had the nonprofit element to it as well. And so for me, when I was one, I feel like this question has posed like this weird, I don't know, at one point today, I was like, are we all just posers? Is that what <laughs> is really trying to ask me? <laughs> like, <laughs> but <laughs> I do feel fortunate that I like it's like with nonprofits, it is more mission driven um, for publishing houses. And so there is the stylistic choice of feeling that you are, you know, able to work in a different sense and maybe a an independent press that is like has to answer to investors or really has to answer to like the bottom line versus nonprofits are able to, you know, apply for these grants and different, you know, different award seasons that allow them to really print books that they believe in that align with their mission. And that's not to say that for-profit publishing houses don't have that same stress. It just, I think with nonprofits, there's more of an emphasis of what are we doing that is community-based and that aligns with what we're trying to do. Um, And they also have a board of directors that they have to answer to instead of investors. And it's interesting because, like you're saying, is the question really, are we all just posers? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I mean, maybe, because maybe we don't even really know what we're, what we mean by calling ourselves that. But I have to think that nobody is completely unbeholden to anyone because a store relies on 
the customers and a publisher relies on necessary outside money or has to be a nonprofit and sort of work in that realm. So then does it really, I mean, I find it, I find it a useful distinction, but I think the question is in the industry, we say it so much amongst ourselves (laughs) that now it might not have any uniform or central meaning it might have a lot of different meanings to a lot of people, which isn't the worst thing, but it sometimes feels like we're all on a different page when we're talking about it. Right. Does it make you uncomfortable? I think when people use the term indie in the sense of like how like it could be exclusionary to like say people who, you know, booksellers who do work at bigger chains, or is it more of like, we're using this title and it, has no value in the way that it used to have value maybe 10 years ago? I think it's a little both because I think we've kind of, there's a a certain sense, certainly in the Bay Area where there's a lot of bookstores, you can't go, like you're more likely to go to an independently owned bookstore than you are to a chain. There's one chain and it exists in a shopping mall that not many people go to. So it's kind of like, Barnes and Noble. Oh, of course. Yeah, right? And it's like, you wouldn't even think that it's there because it's not, um, people don't really go there. Um, But so for us to be like, we're an indie store, well, we don't really stand apart in that sense from our other stores in the Bay Area. They could just as easily say that. So I guess in a certain way, I'm like, well, we've kind of overused the term. But then... I don't know if cust. I think maybe we put more emphasis on it than customers do. I think customers maybe don't always care as much as, as we might care to distinguish. Well, and I wonder if it came from like my, my book selling days were not pre Amazon, but they were when Barnes and Noble and Borders were a big threat to indie book selling. And I know we're talking about publishing and then we might shift, but like, there's a part of me that thinks that like, that's how a lot of this all gets talked about still within the industry. And so even though we're kind of like, Hey, we all succeed if Barnes and Noble doesn't also go out of business, you know, like there's, there's this way that like, we're still set in that old way of talking about it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that, that was what we kept coming back to in our previous episode where, we weren't opposed to the term so much that we, we just were very curious about what it's actually still doing. Like it, right. it feels outdated in many respects. And I, I, my, my first bookstore job was in the mid nineties and we were, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And there was a, you know, a large, a couple of borders. There was at least one or two Barnes and Noble so it was a bit of a distinguisher, but even then, I don't, re- I don't recall it being there. There being such the ubiquity of the term mm-hmm. could just be because there there weren't really a whole lot of other indies in Cincinnati. I don't know. We were sort of the the, the game in town, um, but the we we pivoted pivoted from there in our episode to you know to thinking about the the marketing aspect of 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 being an indie which is where not not so much that I'm allergic to marketing but I do I want to have a hand in it rather than having it imposed upon me 
and and I, I want to be an agent to whatever the marketing is doing um, so I can have a sense of if it's if it's something I want to be a part of um, and there's such a a squishiness <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to what what it's actually doing these days in the absence of of in the, in the big scale of a bar, of a borders and a Barnes and Noble right see for me I think like when I think about indie book selling, like the term has never really, for me, I always viewed indie book selling as like stylistically having choices in your business model. And mm-hmm. especially for like Deep Vellum, the way that the store, how I buy, bought for the store, it was 90% independent presses and maybe 10% big five. And that was, you know, a style choice that we made. Um, but like branding makes me far more uncomfortable. Like when bookstores have a brand versus... I don't know. I just always associate indie with like, oh yeah, this is, even if it's good or bad, this is your, your choice and how you want to run your business. And I could disagree with that, but like a bookstore's brand tends to be more jarring to me. Yeah, I think so too, <laughs> because it, the bigger the store gets, the more that that brand stretches with it and sometimes struggles to cover certain aspects that are less pleasant um, in bigger stores, I think a lot of people took umbrage with stores that we perceive as being on a such a bigger level, like Strand and Powell's, lumping themselves in with us and saying, like, we need your support. And it was sort of, I think, a moment of like, well, are you really with us or are you really with them? And then that's sort of like, a function of marketing, but it's also, again, there are booksellers that work at Strand and Pals or booksellers who work at Barnes and Noble. And, you know, there are booksellers who are working in different fields who still have the knowledge and probably don't feel that held by the phrase indie bookseller. But on the other hand. Yeah. But why would, why would uh, Nancy Bass, like what, what does it gain her? to say I'm an independent bookseller. I think it's kind of akin to in um, a movie production when the Miramax first came out, mm-hmm. uh, not to bring up a terrible man, but he was seen as this like, oh, they just like came and they made this company. And then after that, it was like, if you could be an independent distributor, if you could be an independent this, it was like, then you're really doing it. Then you're really making it. And I think similarly, that got co-opted pretty heavily to think of Miramax as an indie. Anything is hilariously silly. And then like now we see a similar thing with like Barnes and Noble rebrand to be this Waterstones model. Are those going to be called indie bookstores? Is that wrong? I don't know. There was an aesthetic to those, like thinking about like, you know, the the film idea that, you know, and or music even that Julia brought up. There was an aesthetic. An indie aesthetic, and I'm wondering: is there an is there an indie aesthetic to to publishing? Let's say. You know, it's interesting. As we've been talking, I've, I've been kind of thinking about one of the things that I think does kind of separate us from the big corporate publishers, the big five publishing houses, is that like I don't have I don't have a lot dictated to me in how I have to deal with a book or market a book I can shift gears really fast if one book is taking off 
I can, I get to kind of, you know, put my weight behind the books that I, you know, really believe in and want to succeed. And like, and not that I don't put weight behind all the books, but like, you know, I get to kind of make those decisions. And I think like at, and I've never worked at a big five publishing house. So, you know, I don't know, maybe I have this wrong, but from what I've seen in my years of working in this industry, sometimes those publicists at the big five are like, you know, they get, they get sent a book that they have to like champion whether or not they like it. And so I think maybe that's part of it is that like in our way, we get to kind of build our aesthetic in a way that like an indie bookseller does. And I think in publishing, we can be having the same conversation, you know, is a big place like Norton, um, which is a great publisher, but are they an indie publisher is, you know, does is Grove Atlantic an indie publisher or do they tip over into something else? Um, I mean, I think those are the kind of like questions that I have because I don't, because we don't have a definition for this and for what we're talking about when we're talking about this, you know? I think it's also the money element too, where I'm like, I don't, sometimes I hear even arguments about different indie presses or like the big five and it it's centered around like, well, you know, they have this money to be able to do these things that other indie presses can't do. And I'm like, are we mad about that? That this like independent process, like, you know what I mean? Like it seems such a weird, a weird road to take versus like, I think I tend to judge big five presses off the, the authentic side of what they're doing of like what is being portrayed of like the books that they're publishing and like how it's being portrayed and who is actually like working on these books and who's editing these books and the care that's going into it versus like being mad that someone else has money you know what I mean like it's such an insidery baseball kind of thing because some of us might know for example like you know I always feel like I'm picking on them but I'm not but uh, you know, the, 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 the Coke money at, at Catapult. Mm. So there's money there. Does that exclude them from being an indie? I, you know, I, some would say maybe, some would say no, some would say yes. Um, I've, I'm so ambivalent about the term, I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> well, it would be really gatekeeping of us in a yeah, way. Yeah. It doesn't, that doesn't seem necessary, I no. guess. No, and it's, and it's, and on the customer side of things, there's lots of customers that would look at someone like Riverhead, for example, and because Riverhead has so successfully pushed themselves in, in a media way to almost feel at a distance from the corporate nature of Penguin Random House. So like they, they have their own aesthetic, they have their, this media uh, engine that makes them look kind of plucky and kind of built for quote unquote indie bookstores. So many people have no sense even that they are just an imprint um, but with gobs and gobs and gobs of money mm-hmm. uh, at their disposal. So it's, yeah, I, like, like I agree with Christina that the money part, it's, it's there and it can certainly influence people who know. <laughs> but <Sure. laughs> once you get past that, which is most people, I don't know, it, it, it ultimately sort of fades away. Uh, okay, anyway. do, do your customers actually ask you because I feel like when I was at Deep Vellum a good majority of my job was kind of explaining the inventory because people would come in and be like I don't know any 
these titles like I don't know any and then I would like go on my little spiel about <laughs> how I buy and then they would just be like but what does that mean is that just that they're like self-published <laughs> <laughs> so it like it, no one actually cared I think when I would actually explain it or the difference and maybe it was just then it would make me feel embarrassed for being obvious and also just sounding like I was on my soapbox where I'm like this person just wants to read a book and here I am trying to ruin that (laughs) (laughs) that kind of gets to the branding part too where like you know there are some publishers I'm like I'm looking at a spinner we have of NYRB classics you know that have that look and then you have other publishers that have in the past tried to have uh campaigns where you display all of the Europa books together or whatever um and create this brand identity for customers uh and then others where like i don't think i've ever seen that push from rare bird or or frankly from most of them but uh i guess i mean is it's probably to some extent advantageous to 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 have that but again how allergic are we to branding right i feel like um there's a way, like, obviously, NYRB is fucking killing it. Sorry, can, I can cuss on this right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, NYRB is fucking killing it. I mean, Melville House, I feel like Melville House and their, like, the interviews, the last interview series, their little novella series that they did, like, those were brilliant branding campaigns. And, like, those are discussions that we have in the Rare Bird office. It's just that, like, we can't pick a fucking topic um, to like do something like that about. So we haven't done it. Um, But, you know, I know people or the 33 and a thirds, like people who want to collect all of those books, like those are brilliant marketing campaigns and they're brilliant branding campaigns for that specific thing. Um, But also I think that like with a publisher, I can just speak for us with a publisher like us, we're so varied, like, you might know our like weirdo queer fiction or our like music books. People usually know our music books, but like, you know, we have like business books and things that like are, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily know it was us unless you were looking for our logo on it. So in that way, we can't really brand all of our titles like that. And I think to our, to a good effect, like that's a good thing because if you love our punk rock music books, I don't want you picking up our business books, which are totally different, right? <laughs> like the assumption that they would all come, they all come from Rare Bird, and so they'll all be of a specific sort is is not always, you know, true, and that's totally reasonable. Um, I personally, I think I I came from a store. Uh, used bookstore land where we would get the NYRBs and people would sort of buy them like collecting all of them and I don't know if that works out you know I hope they like them all but some of them <laughs> like I don't know that this one and that one they look pretty on a wall you know I don't know that yeah. they go together as far as like themes but it doesn't really matter so would you all agree or push back on this I the sense that I have that And the reason why I brought up like even the branding that quote unquote independent publishers are more seem to me anyway, on the surface, more apt to 
try to create those that those those identifiable branded book objects more so than the big five it seems i mean not 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 counting penguin classics which is just you know in and of itself and a kind of a classical thing but of like new books out on the market it it feels to me that that indies are the ones maybe by way of design or not just certainly if, if they're doing it, it's by way of design but by way of necessity does does that ring true for you or, or, or am i i don't know just pulling it out of the air no i think i hear what you're saying as far as like there were certain campaigns from big five publishers to do that kind of thing, like to rebrand classics and you put them all in a dump and display them all together. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that the customers really cared all that much. Maybe at some places they did, but it, it never seems as successful to me. Like I'm looking in the store right now. I see we have a display of charcoal press books and like a charcoal press book to my eyes anyway, looks like a charcoal press book. I don't know if it does to, <laughs> to, to customers. Exactly you're saying. <laughs> um, yeah. But then but then, like, and obviously, you know, we mentioned Europa, but then you have, like, other, like, big five ones. When they do it, it almost feels like they are trying to look like something that they're not. For example, if I look at, like, the Rachel Cusk trilogy. Mm. To me, that, I mean, that's a branded thing for that series, so maybe that doesn't quite count. Um, but I'm trying to think of an example of, of like, of, of an imprint in a major in a in a major publishing house that attempts this and it just i don't know that doesn't work <laughs> i don't i don't think they do it by imprint i think they do it you know like when fates and furies came out lauren groff like they changed all the covers of her other books to look like fates and furies right it's like as soon as someone has a huge smash hit they're like okay make everything else this author has done look exactly like it and it's and just from a marketing perspective, that's pretty brilliant, right? Like people, people are going to pick up that book because they're like, oh, I loved Fates and Furies. Whereas I think like, uh, like the other indie press that I think, I mean, I think they kind of do it the best is $2 radio, which like, you never don't know that you're looking at a $2 radio book the second you touch it. And like, they have that tattoo club, like people get $2 radio tattoos. And I think it's just like, it's kind of, you know, my boss Tyson is from the music business and sometimes he'll like talk to me about record companies, record labels. And I'm like, dude, you know, you talk to me about a couple of Bay area record labels and I might know them cause I grew up in the Bay area, but like, I don't know all these indie record labels. Like I, I just don't, but he knows each and every one of them. So there's this, I feel like in a way indie presses cater to like whatever the equivalent book nerd kind of fan boy girl person you know comes at us with for sure I I didn't know until I started working at East Bay booksellers I mean I was aware of archipelago books I did not know they were sort of this niche sought after oh they published a new one I'm gonna get it because it's them and I think that that's very I feel like that kind of branding is very desirable for a big publisher and they just do it in other ways. Like they make all the John Grishams look the same or whatever. And right. That achieves the same effect to the John Grisham fan, but they can't do it in the same way with something new. They can't take the same risk. I don't know. I think it's not really a risk because it's a lot of money. 
see when it comes to Elisa, I I hate to be that person but like those things work on me like I I'm a Libra I love you know aesthetic things that are exclusive um chic I think when I first discovered APS a couple years ago someone described it as like oh, it's a really sexy literary magazine. I was like, ooh, count me in. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> done. So it's it's one of those things I think with indies, it's just like, maybe it's, yes, it is marketing and branding, but it's also selling books is so hard. Like we have to kind of pull all the, you know what I mean? Like if you have these ideas and these tricks, like, of course, you know, what? why not? Because it's all trial and error. And I, I think there's, I think book world has this, this thing where we, have a feeling that we are the center of everything in some regard like there's just we're thinking about these things that no other readers are thinking about if you ask them but a lot of it is just like when you for example two dollar radio it's new readers are seeing that and they're like oh I can identify something I can this is the first book that I you know I know this this size and this this like little radio uh logo and it feels familiar and it's welcoming and I think that's something that indie even if it is just a term that we're just kind of using, they excel at, you know, bringing new readers in and making it feel like you can be part of it versus you kind of get lost in the big five. That's very Uh, true. I was thinking about wave poetry and how if a person is like into wave poetry, it is very likely that they will just be into the other poets that are in there published by them as opposed to just searching for one poet and then moving on to a different imprint. Seems like there are certain stylistic ones that really do well and are stand out because of it. Someone like Wave and, and, and even Archipelago and may, many of the ones that have the most distinctive vibe also have subscription plans, which oh. uh, you know would, makes for a nice package when you receive like you know your your uh, your, your little bundle of uh, I didn't of a uh, transit books or something like that you know they all kind of you know, similarly designed and mm-hmm. such so that could very well play and i was just like laughing at the idea of potent attempting to do that with a, like, <laughs> a, a random array <laughs> a random array weirdly like designers from all over the place with different visions uh wouldn't quite work see deep vellum was merchandised by press like everything was like grouped by publisher instead of um I guess, genre. Um, and But that was because I feel like the clientele that was coming into the bookstore is what I would consider like non-traditional readers, like people who say that they're like, oh, I don't read, you know, or I'm trying to get back into it, but I don't actually. Um, and that way I could kind of explain what each press did mm-hmm. and they could pick that way instead of me trying to just tell them my favorite books. Um, and it worked. Like I had a lot of customers who would just come back and one guy read all of, you know, $2 Radio's catalog, or I have another guy who was, he got really into Wakefield, which is such an obscure <laughs> press, like, <laughs> like, if it's, you're diving into something, like, that's an odd choice, but he loved it, and he was like, I just want to read the, like, what else, what else do they have that they've published? I really love these two books that you gave me from this press, so I don't know. I think it kind of helps at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that, Christina, and I think, like, that's so it too is I think uh, as someone who sort of is always trying to get books into more and more people's hands and I know we all kind of struggle with this 
these problems in our own ways and you know booksellers do as well but like I'm I always think about like how little of the American population is like regularly reading books and I'm going you know in my head like how do we get books into those people's hands that like if they just you know if they if they could just experience you know the joy of of diving into something they would but whatever the big five is handing out and which is what you know a lot of people are seeing mostly that's not really working for them and so you know how do we kind of get books into the readers hands that are like a little edgier or a little just more up like niche audiences alleys and I think like that's such an interesting conversation and I think that's in a lot of ways the void that the quote indie publishers have right like that's what we fill is that void and perhaps get to push out a little bit more and like with the help of a bookstore like Deep Vellum who then is placing those books into customers hands or you know I know you guys do that a lot at East Bay and you know um, Stephen does that at Point Reyes and you know there's some and, and in um, at Brazos in Houston, uh, Keegan does that stuff. So getting those books into people's hands where you're like, okay, how do we reach out to that customer base? And then how do we like get them to trust us that we're going to put something in their hand that's worthwhile? That's kind of always the question. And we're not being snobs about it, right? We're like, okay, I know this might, you might not recognize, like this might not look I promise I'm not just giving you something to show you that I'm really cool. I promise you'll actually like it. Like you just need to. Totally. Well, there's also, I mean, there is like getting it into the customer's hands, but it's also a matter of getting it into the bookseller's hands, which, you know, the fact that like we could probably sit here and like probably name the bookstores that we can count on (laughs) to really be an advocate for, for the, for the, for the really identifiably independent presses. But, sure. and, and to back up, and in the previous episode, I was, I, when I first started working at Diesel and, and, uh, and, and I knew how they bought, and I, my, my, I thought that like an indie identified itself as an indie, independent bookstore because of its focus on independent publishers, because that's what, what the buyers at Diesel did. I was like, oh, well, that's what they, that's, right. that's what makes you indie. But then as I actually started spending time at other bookstores or going to Winter Institute and, and seeing what's on the indie next list, and I'm like, well, that's clearly not the case. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, well, the fact that we're stocking Dalky Archive Press and Rare Bird and Public Space, that has nothing to do with us being indie at all. Uh, so, that's got to be frustrating on the publishing side of things. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I mean, I don't, okay. So I guess maybe if I go back to the term indie, I think what I'm thinking is that I, I like the idea of being able to identify bookstores that in publishing houses that are, putting a little bit more thought into their inventory and their catalog. And so if that is how the term can be used, because yeah, what are the alternatives? It's like, you're right. Like I'm like there is just Barnes and Noble <laughs> left or like these weird Amazon pop-up shops and whatever. Um, so like, if that's the term, then yes, I feel like, but I feel like there's no education behind that. And that's a weird book selling book industry gatekeeping thing where we just, mm-hmm. 
we've created these terms or these like how we buy or even like with indie press and big five that no one knows what we're talking about. And maybe yeah. it's really <laughs> to ruin the word and not customers. Yeah, there's definitely a big gap as far as like what a customer wants to know and the amount of information you can tell them. Just mm-hmm. like, why can't you get this book quicker? It's like, do you want me to tell you the real answer? Probably they don't. Probably they want to hear something much quicker than it's, you know. Well, you have customers who think, who think that we get books from Amazon. Yes. And so there's that. <laughs> And we have customers who just don't understand the distribution channels, which is totally fine. We barely understand. Well, and like, it wouldn't make a difference (laughs) if we didn't live in a world where Amazon didn't sort of create the idea that everything is sort of on the pipeline and it's ready to go. But like, when, when we try to convey to a customer, this is a cool publisher because they you know, work really hard to put these things out. They don't get big marketing budgets. They have to use their money really wisely. They have to champion the books they really care about. A customer, I think, is like, okay, you know, that's cool. I think ultimately it's more about the book itself and how they engage with the book itself. But I don't know that customers see any material difference when we say things like, well, this is public. Like, I don't know that they even are aware Unless, you know, like at Deep Vellum, where you have someone who's, who's stewarding you through these various things and um, giving you context for them, just like a very nice thing as a customer. I'm going to be a little cynical. Go for it. I know. It's unheard of. <laughs> I know. Brad, wow. Character, charactership. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm uh, just a mild pushback. I don't even know that it, it's like that the book matters as mm-hmm. much to, to most customers. It's more the idea of what the book represents. Oh yeah. Because no, totally. I, I sell things to people all the time and I have no expectation that they're ever going to read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> how many times have I bought something from, from a bookstore and like, I don't even know where it is anymore. It's somewhere in the house. So it's, it's, not, it's not because they're, they're lame. It's just the nature of reading takes time. <laughs> yeah, and, but, but if you buy, you know, some something some cool thing that is off the beaten path you have that you have that let rush from having that thing mm-hmm. what were we gonna say julia i was just gonna say like i i totally agree and like you know in my normal life when we're not all locked in the house um i do a lot of the travel for rare bird and i go to a lot of indie bookstores and i always like buy the books about the city that i'm in or whatever when they have like a nice regional section I love doing that. And like a lot of times I'll read little chunks of those books, but like I don't often finish them (laughs) Um, partially just because of my own reading schedule and habits. But also I think that like there's, there's this way that like, I think a lot about the, the education um, that independent booksellers sort of had to give the public when it became clear that Amazon was like a true threat, like that, oh my God, this is actually what might put us out of business. Um, That there was a, you know, there was a a coordinated effort to be like, let's educate the public about what happens when they shop at any bookstores. And obviously that's work that still happens. And, and, you know, 
it, it clearly actually did really work um, that campaign. And when I was at Book Soup, we used to do a small press of the month because, of course, like that's the stuff that we were all reading. You know what I mean? Like, sure, we knew the big books that were coming out, but like we were reading the little Dalky Archive books or the two dollar radio books. And and like, I think a lot about that, about like, is it is it the bookstore's job to educate the public about this or is it you know bookstores and book and indie publishers together our job together to be like how do we how do we work together to educate the public about some of this stuff is that what the like I don't know if it's a a solution is the right word but is that what the kind of like next steps are to help each other out as indie people or indie businesses I think so I think that's reasonable because otherwise it everything is so siloed and there's no connection being made between the stores that are ordering from these types of publishers versus those types of publishers and the people who want to know more. I mean, there's not that many customers who want to get down in the weeds with it, but there are some and there are people who care about the distinction I'm thinking now about a lot of the ways that indie got turned into like small business, like that language as Mm. well. And that's more accurate for a lot of people to be like, keep small businesses, economies running. That's very important for our town and our cities. But yeah, it's the education thing is interesting because it's, you always want to be wary of how much information you're giving customers. (laughs) They only want a teeny tiny bit. what i wanted to see and maybe it'll happen in subsequent ones but like at winter institute for example especially when it was this year when it was virtual i wanted it to be opened up such that smaller publishers not only could pitch books which is important um for you know to sell it to booksellers but to have a virtual space, and I think maybe they do to some extent, but to, to really focus on this where every publisher that wanted one, or maybe there was a nominal fee, could have a video presentation actually not just selling a certain array of books, whatever their new stuff is, but actually telling the story of what that press is about mm-hmm. and why I should actually give a shit about the book you just told me you talked to me about for four, four minutes so you know you learn about archipelago press being nonprofit, or you learn about deep vellum you know the story behind its rise and actually being equipped with not just being able to talk about the individual books but actually creating the narrative around which the book or from which the book comes uh, which i think is even a gap in the bookselling aspect uh, many booksellers have no real sense of, 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 of the publishers themselves. I don't know. It's just a sense I have. The origin story of city lights is very, very central to the city lights publishing success. I think mm-hmm. because I feel oh, yeah. like people are deeply, they care a lot about that story and it's an interesting story and it's, they published a lot of books since they came out. So it's sort of like, I think that's, that's one of the, big big indie publishers who is public 
facing in a way that the public might know their story, right? The, that might the city know. lights loves telling their story. No. <laughs> no. I mean, it's a good story. It is. It's a well, great story. But like what you're saying, like if we if we leaned into it, Brad, you could do that at this store. Like you could be like the man who the community rallied around to buy the store that he but it's a boring was story. It like it's it's like it didn't need to happen. Okay, but you could <laughs> manipulate it such that you would want to do a a, a big story to get people interested in your business, but your focus is more on the store itself and different things. But it it's it, it's a worth I think it's a worthwhile thing. I mean, well, maybe I that's know. one aspect of being an, an an independent store or publisher is to have like an identifiable a story. story. Huh. But see, when I was at Winter Institute as like a new bookseller, I think the first year I went, I mean, yeah, I thought, do you, I don't know if you guys remember Albuquerque where it was like, they had the smallest little corner of like independent presses that was like on the bottom yeah. floor sure. <laughs> and like, no, like no, like literary magazines or like, it was just like SPD and that was that it. Um, what was that? Was that your first time? Yeah, uh, Albuquerque was my first. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and but then also, so there was like that, that was like, okay, there's, I already know who these processes are. I've already met them. Um, but then at the flip side, the, all of the bookstores I met too, also kind of depressed me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that was not like, oh, we'll see, that's also a thing we don't talk about is that, you know, your bookstore and, you know, our, our friends that are booksellers are you know, we're basically talking to each other on the internet. Like that's who, who we're, you know, that's who we're talking that's to. That's what book Twitter is, yeah. yeah. That's just book Twitter. You're talking to your six friends who like, who also agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then you go to the conferences and you're like, oh, you sell that? You do that? That's in like, I was like partially interested, but also I'm like, I could imagine, yeah, what if it was flipped and everybody had to say, you know, as much as like every independent press had to give their ethos and like, their catalog what if bookstores had to do that too and what would that even look like would you know would it change your mind about a majority of who makes up this market I, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah like a lot of these stories are you know it, it without even placing value judgments on it some of them are just better than others right so and some people have more of a mission to be in this business and more of a interest to do specific things with their with their space here but um yeah that is that is interesting I feel That's not that I have any commentary I, I love so many bookstores I think I'm still just like the last town hall we had that was virtual I don't know if like me getting into an argument with that one store about mind comp I don't know if anybody remembers that but that like, <laughs> I remember it that still haunts me <laughs> Think about that. that was wild. <laughs> argument that it should be sold because it's like a freedom of speech thing. Is that their vibe? It will see that. Yes, that was. Yeah. But I also just used it as an example. Like it wasn't. I wasn't trying to talk talk about mind comp. She sure, just yeah. <laughs> wild on me on this town hall, and then everybody just like all of these bookstore owners just like attacked me on this town hall. Actually, I love to sell Hitler's manifesto. So well, like, like, right, calm could, down. We could even like pull back from that a little bit, not not to go historically 
uh, evil, we can go locally evil. And <laughs> so I saw a tweet today from JD Vance. Um, basically, like, and I, along the lines of like, basically, you know, we need to have strong borders. Liberals are the reason for the border crisis, blah, 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 because they want cheap labor. And like reading this, I'm like, independent bookstores have a hand in this fucker having mm-hmm. having the voice that he has now mm-hmm. because we went along with NPR. We went along with what all the reps said. You need to buy a shitload of this. Mm-hmm. And we did not do our part in, in deplatforming. <laughs> and I, it's, I wasn't a buyer at the time. I don't know how I would have exactly what was going into the, uh, into the promotion of this guy, but I know that we sold it. Um, and it wasn't really until it was huge that I learned how toxic it was, but it's a failure on our part in my mind. Uh, but it's also like, it's so hard, right? Cause like we have to live in capitalism right. apparently right now. Um, and you know, if it's hard because it's like, at what point do we start cutting this shit down off and down? Right. Like at what point do we say, okay, do we don't need JD Vance to have a big fucking platform. And like, I think that that's, I don't have an answer to that question. I think it's a really hard question to answer, but also like, there's this way in which it's like, I get it. Like if you're a store that sold a ton of that book that helped pay your rent and that sucks. That sucks that that's the truth. And I don't know what the solution is to make it so that like, we aren't giving big platforms to people like that. Right. I, I mean, I, yes, we sold a lot of it when we were here. It was one of the top selling books of that year. Um, by that point, I was deeply embarrassed of it. Um, <laughs> but, but I also think like it, what bugs me is that there's a, too many of us don't trust our own sensibilities. Sure. So we think that if I don't have this thing that is going to sell or even is selling, that what I have can't somehow replace it. Mm-hmm. That, that I'm going to quote unquote lose sales. As this, right. as the, the only person who would come in, into my store, you know, if that person was happened to buy Hillbillyology, they would have never bought anything else because I don't trust my own sensibilities to actually replace it. Um, that's I, and maybe we don't, maybe most of us can't do that very well. Maybe that's, maybe I'm just naive and, and idealistic, but I don't know. It depends it's, on where your store is yeah. too. Yeah. People don't want to be told. Yeah. Brad, are you saying that we all need to sell frontline items, publishers and bookstores need to get into the side merch? <laughs> we all just need stationery. <laughs> you know, if you, if you sold stationery, you wouldn't have to wouldn't have to deal with all you know, this. Stuff. Tote bag, tote bag, more tote bags. Never runs for governor of whatever. You know, <laughs> it's just so. I love Brad but, about stationery, though. They give me immense joy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I want to just I just want to follow up and say, maybe if we're talking about hillbilly elegy specifically is the solution and i don't know if this is to say hey we're we're not carrying that because you know xyz reason but here's sarah marsha's heartland 
which actually is about the same thing and is way better and isn't like fucking weird Republican propaganda. Um, like try this one. It's actually way better. Like, is that the solution? I think it's, I think it's an approach. Uh, absolutely. I don't think you have to be like, you know, dogmatic about it and, and, and have one way, but I don't know. I, and when I when I'm when I'm casting these stones, I'm I'm throwing them at myself as well because you know we we stock some things that ideologically I wouldn't be at all into, um, nothing that I'm deeply opposed to, but but I, I I'm just this past year has really made me more rooted in this idea of trusting what you do, trusting mm. what you're about, and if it doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like learn from that mistake, yeah. you know, keep going. I talk a lot about us being in like scarcity mode in the bookselling industry, which I think is pretty much like you're saying like, we'll miss the sale if the customer comes in and we don't have the, you know, we'll, we'll miss that sale, even though that's not subtracting because we haven't gotten it yet. But <laughs> we have this idea of like, have to get it, have to get it. And a lot of the times that just doesn't, it just, it, it's not logical. It doesn't apply to most situations. I remember when I worked at a sci-fi bookstore and 50 shades of gray was hitting really hard. And we just, we sold sci-fi, we sold paranormal romance, we sold mysteries. Like we just didn't have that mm-hmm. book. We had books with sex, but it was paranormal. It wasn't, you know, right. humans. The way it should be. <laughs> the way that- <laughs> and so people would come in and it was sort of like, me having to say, well, we don't have that book because we don't sell that kind of book, period. But we could get it in for you. Or if you want, maybe we have something, you know, but it was like half the time they came in specifically for that book and they don't want to wait and they don't care and they'll leave. The other half the time they were like, oh, you know, I just heard about it. My friend just said it was a book. And now that I'm here, I'll look around, you know, yeah. and, and you have that moment to kind of like seize upon them and maybe direct them towards something better. But sometimes, frankly, we don't have the time. And sometimes people are terrible. So, <laughs> well, and, and I mean, I think that's so, you know, I think obviously book selling on every single level is complicated, right? So like, because, I mean, going back to kind of what you said earlier, Brad, about like walking into stores and seeing all big five books, like, yeah, as a as an indie press or a small press, it's disconcerting when I see the employee recommend shelf and it's all Riverhead and FSG and, you know, these big places where I'm like, I get it. I get that that's the book, but like also is it necessary for you to recommend me Michelle Obama's book, which you have to be dead to not know about, or can you, you know, is there another spot for it? And I think that like the, the way that um, it does not work at a place like definitely doesn't work at a place like Amazon, but doesn't work at a place, even some, most of the time, like Barnes and Noble is that like, you guys have such a depth of knowledge, right? And like being able to engage with customers on that depth of knowledge is what indie book selling or, you know, whatever small bookstores do for the, um, the book reading sort of economy. And, and those door openings, I think are so hopeful. 
you know, when customers open those doors for you and are like, well, I came for this, but like, that's, I don't really care. Let me see what else you have. You know, that's such a great, what a like hopeful opening. Mm-hmm. And I think even recently with like, independent presses first big five, the level of connection to booksellers and then adjacently from that readers is a little bit closer than what you would see at a big publisher. So by proximity, we are closer to readers just because indie presses tend to work with independent booksellers and bookstores more so. Um, And so that feels like a weird little, like a productive little circle (laughs) ecosystem that kind of works and helps each other. You can kind of, you can kind of cut through, you know, like if it's a smaller press, like if, if it's coffee house and we want to set something up with them, we can sort of get to the people we need to get to. And if it's PRH and I'm a store that doesn't have a relationship with them and we really want to pitch this event that we thought of and for one of their authors, but you know, it might require a certain tenacity of effort to get to the right person and to really say, hey, we can support this event. We can support this author, even though we're not a store that, you know, we're not city lights, we're not whatever, you don't know us. I don't know if, I think sometimes people feel like, A, they don't have time and they don't have energy to do that. And B, um, that it's like not okay, you know, like Mm -hmm. that it's not like sanctioned. Like you are this kind of store to the big publisher, but to a small press it's like we're all sort of on more equal footing because press wants to get their books out whereas prh wants to get their books out for sure but has different uh channels i guess to do yeah that. and and different resources and and it just feels yeah the scale is different yeah so like you know if we if, if like a medium-sized store really gets behind a rare bird book and you know in that year they sell 200 copies they're fucking superstars to Rare Bird. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. But if, like, if you sell 200 copies of, uh, you know, so the, the, the latest Riverhead book, get okay. in line. I actually, I actually <laughs> have a good uh, comparison where at Books Inc., uh, one of my coworkers who was retired from CNH Sugar as a salesman <laughs> was in his like 80s. And this man is truly like selling water to wells. And he decided that he loved um, that book, City of Thieves by David Benioff. Oh, yeah. I swear to God, he sold 500 copies. He sold so many of this book because he just, it was what he did. He had a person, it was like everything was in place. And they sort of acknowledged that we were selling a lot of the book. And at the end of it, they sent him like a, I think it was like a letter from David Benioff that was like, I really appreciate you selling this book and I'm glad that you liked it. And it was, it was a nice gesture, but I remember Bill who was like well-to-do and did not need the job financially was like, Hmm, you know, back when I was a salesman, they would give me a bonus. Like they would give me something. (laughs) I would get something for having done this. And I just remember thinking, right, exactly. I was like, I mean, you know, you did sell the hell out of that book, Bill. Yeah. But again, get in line, right? Yeah, you're, you're not even going to get a discount bump from uh, no. from BRH. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but uh, also, I think, like, you're totally right. And there are certain stores, like, I could name you a couple of stores that have, like, 
done really well with certain of our titles yeah. because I, I'm the one who yeah. tracks that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just me. I'm also the person that if you email rare bird, you're going to get me. And I, and if you're like, Hey, can you, this author come in and sign, we're selling a ton of their book. I'm like, yes, I will get them there immediately. You know? So like, I mean, just to like kind of emphasize what Christina was saying, it is that way, right? Like in, in the way that independent book selling, like y'all are doing a bunch of different jobs. Like, so are we, that's part of independent book selling, right. Or independent publishing is like, yeah, if you email info at Rare Bird Lit, it's going to come to me. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and and I'm the one who's handling every single piece of that puzzle. So, like, yes, I'm going to work intimately with you because I have to have a relationship with you because, you know, we need to be able to call on you when, you know, we have an event that we need books for or something like that. And And I think for me, like, when we were talking about, like, a small store kind of reaching out to a publisher for me, it's always like, I, I will, I will always say yes. If we can, you know, if we can, if I feel like we're going to do well together, like I don't want to send you guys a terrible event, but also if you're really into something, like I'm going to do every, everything I can to make that happen. And I know as the person who used to have to try to get at that point it was penguin and random house um but like to send me authors like yeah i had to do, do a whole like dog and pony show you know i had to do a whole rigmarole to try to get people out christina you when you were at the felon didn't you do like a, a hotline or something i did my claim to fame <laughs> amazing <laughs> my bookseller hotline um it work it was okay so I felt really uncomfortable at the beginning of the pandemic of just like trying to sell a product, which is, you know, like it was just like me pushing books in a terrible time. Um, And so I kind of just thought about it in a way of how can I still do my job, which is centered around capitalism, but in a way that makes me feel less gross about it. So I created a hotline so that people could basically call in and it would go straight to my phone. If they texted me, it also went to my phone. Um, and we could just talk about whatever we want, whatever they wanted. And I phrased all of the, like the graphics and the marketing around it as being like, you know, we can talk about, like, I'll tell you jokes. I'll tell you, I'll give you horoscope, your horoscope for the day, like unsolicited <laughs> advice, like master of like, yeah, that kind of thing. And naturally, if I think of a book, well, of course, I'll recommend it to you. Um, but it really was just a way of at the time feeling so everyone felt so isolated that I was like, well, if I can make somebody laugh and if they find a book that, you know, is connected to the, whatever we're talking about and if they buy it or if they don't buy it, like that's, you know, completely up to them, but it's a, it was a really no pressure. Just, you want to talk to somebody? Do you want to like, just text me your question? Do you want me to, you know, tell you what I'm watching on TV? We could do it that way. <laughs> and it. Multiple calls of, a day or. Huh? Did you get multiple calls a day? Yeah, for the first, like, I think two months were really insane. I think this is, I'm also a phone person now. Like, I I was a phone person before, but I definitely have mastered being on the phone. It does not make me uncomfortable. And it, it was really funny that people would call in and be so nervous about <laughs> talking to somebody. And I would have to, like, make them really, like, the first two minutes for me just being really casual and just trying to talk to them about random things 
to make them realize like oh she's not like a weirdo in (laughs) trying to get things and what was also great is that a lot of indie publishers called in too oh that's cool yeah it's like outsourcing the really cool non-selling aspect of the interpersonal part of the job yeah and for me every campaign I think that I've done for Deep Bellum and that I hope to do for APS has always been to some extent of like I am very appreciative of community and readers and when I was a bookseller it, it I just felt like I was getting something from the people that would come into the bookstore and I wanted to be able to give that back and that's kind of how a lot of my ideas have always been formed of just that gratefulness kind of that's awesome. I love that so as we wind down, I, I thought it might be, and, and really links well to what you just said, um, if we could like individually each of us, and I'll go first to give you time to think of, about what your response might be, but for, for our respective perspective, you know, uh, positions on the, on the term indie, independent, if we could say what we want it to mean rather than just an evaluation of what it does. Uh, So for example, for me, what I would like for it to mean for book selling is that a bookstore reflects upon what it is, what it's trying to do, and um, tries to live up to that. And really kind of just boils down to that. And having, having, being missional, I guess is kind of how we, one of the things we started was with having a, an idea of what this, your space is about and and then being able to measure the degree to which you are actually going about your business doing it or not doing it. And if you don't have the first, maybe you're not an indie. <laughs> so if you're not like, a, like we were saying, like story, like if you don't really have like a, yeah. I mean, a story that you're... I mean, but it's not, it's not on me. It's not on, it's not on like somebody else to say, well, that person's not an indie. No, no. Yeah. It's like like a self-identified self-identification that for whatever reason, I would think most, most privately run bookstores would have some sort of motivation. It's not going to be my motivation. It's not going to be the same mission that I have, but they may, they, they will have their own respective thing. And if you have that, there should be a, a means by which you measure what you're actually doing and measuring the degree to which you aren't doing it as well. Well, then I guess I would say I would hope that it could be a phrase that makes people feel um, uh, empowered to, on the publishing end, start or continue to um put out books into the world, even though, even knowing how, how big the opposition is and how niche some of the books might be is still continuing to do it and having the confidence in your, in your product and in your, you know, self to say, no, we're making things of quality and it's, you know, it's important to us to do so. And then from a store point of view, I mean, yeah, it's like if you can stand in your in in the idea that that you as a bookseller are um, knowledgeable enough to 
not stock piles of hillbilly elegy and instead pull out three other titles right when it comes up and to say no we have these and just to trust I don't know I guess just to like trust your own skills and to trust um what you do in your in your store I I, I like that you said that because it it makes me think that one of the things that, that sets apart a good independent bookstore, also a good independent publisher, and, even, and, and you know, this would include university presses, um, is that it's less of a chase. Mm -hmm. It's less of a chase for this hypothetical customer. And it is an, an actual sort of presentation mm -hmm. of, of, of their perspective, or whatever they've had maybe a party in creating. Um, and it's it's not trying to anticipate a market. Uh, it's actually trying to create something, uh, yeah. create a market even. So. Anyone got one? Julia, I'll let you go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I wanna, I think, I really like what both of you said. And I think like kind of translating that to a publisher perspective, there's a way in which not much like book selling for me, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not the one choosing out there choosing what books we publish. So they're not all my favorite, but that there are books that I can believe in and get behind. And that even if they're not something that I would necessarily pick up something that like, I'm not ashamed to be putting out and something that I think like, I think creating, creating the market. I mean, I think so often one of the things with the books that we do that I just, that I love is like what we, what I think we so often do and the thing that I'm the most proud of and the thing that I, I would like want to be in, involved in this definition of indie is that like understanding that the market for a book doesn't have to be everyone um and it's okay if it's not everyone mm -hmm. and not to say that the books that are marketed to everyone and that appeal to everyone or to most people you know obviously nothing appeals to everyone but to to a huge not to say that those those big huge books aren't totally valuable because i think they are but just that that's not our game you know we're not the we're not putting out the book that's going to sell uh, you know, 5 million copies. We're putting out the book that's going to get in the hands of people that really need it and want it and love it. And I hope that, I mean, my hope is always just that it connects with someone. It gives them a bit of recognition or solace or joy or hope or whatever thing that they need from that book. And, and the most rewarding times in, in my career are when readers reach out to us and tell me how much a book meant to them, then I feel like we're really, that's really why we do what we do. And I think that that's part of the fact that I'm in a position where if a reader wants to reach out to me, they can and they can get a hold of me really easily. I mean, I think that's part of the indie sort of aesthetic that we're talking about, um, that connection. And when you have those, those lightning in a bottle moments when like a, one of your books does sell, maybe not five million, 
the response isn't simply let's find the next one. It's actually right. how do we how do we spread spread the wealth to actually keep doing what we're doing rather than you know turning on a dime and just looking for what's the next thing that looked exactly like that that we could do it again. Totally, totally. It's having taste, you know, and saying, "Hey, we have taste and we think that we make good decisions on the books that we make and hopefully you do too." Darn it, Julia, I should have gone first. So, <laughs> Sorry. I'm like a little echo. <laughs> I think I think with the term on a larger scale of just for book selling and for independent publishing, I hope that it becomes an identifier. Like I don't really think, you know, Barnes and Noble or any of the big chains are going to go anywhere. Um, but I would hope that in, like the term indie book selling or indie publishing kind of just becomes like an identifier for the effort that these people in this industry are doing to champion books that maybe um, are either from emerging writers, emerging presses. And that, that kind of shows that when you, when you hear the term indie, you just know that there was a massive amount of effort that got, went into the work of it, um, whether it be through hand selling or the marketing of it, or even the editing. Um, and that for publishing to have a mission and be able to make stylistic choices that still align with what your mission is for your press. And that stays consistent and authentic and translates to booksellers and to readers, I think is really important. Obviously a difficult thing to find, but it is a the value that one has. And that more often than not, it's like something that we, we measure within ourselves. We try to do it. We try to measure that of other people, but we generally, when we do so, we, we make a hack of it because we mm-hmm. don't know, we don't know what anything you, is. Any, anything actually is, but <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the authentic, authenticity seems very, very important to the conversation. I think so, because I, I think, you know, there, there have even been cases of books that, you know, maybe wouldn't have, I wouldn't have discovered the, just the passion behind the person selling it to me, whether it be a pitch from a publisher or a bookseller is what, yeah, I'm going to, I have to take notice of this because the care and the, how genuine you feel about this book is just translating to me. And I want to be part of that. Um, and as I think that's kind of what thrives within the indie community, even if it's just us that knows the term is the level of community that we feel towards each other. Well, and totally. And I think like kind of to, to just play off of that, I often think about like at Winter Institute when we're in person and I'm like pitching my books, I feel like it's apparent which books I'm like, y'all have to read this one. Like, you know, and the ones where I'm like, this is really great. And I think, you know, here's the, you know, here's the market that it's good for. And here are the kinds of people that I think you could really sell this to there are those books that I just like cannot contain myself about. And I think that like, that's always what I am striving to, to be like representing is those books that I'm like, I cannot shut up about this book. Um, And I think part of that comes from my book selling days, maybe like, I think I'll always, I think as anyone who has really worked in and loved book selling, you kind of are always a bookseller. Um, I joke with my friends that like as soon as people become friends with me their book collections usually like quintuple and they like have to buy new bookshelves because I'm like oh yeah this one this one this one you got to read this but like I think that's part of it right is that like we have these products that we 
get to be so proud of that we we're so happy to work hard on um, that we get to be so enthusiastic about and um, like kind of circling back to the beginning of this conversation and then we're not being dictated to. It, it, I gotta say, I did come into it feeling not negative about the term, but feeling a little like swimmy about it. Now I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> positive. I feel like uh, it might be a, a murky term, but we, we are, we're making it work in our little we're gonna, ecosystem. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to buy some independent bookstore day pencils. <laughs> Did we solve all publishing and bookselling? Is that what you're saying, Liz? <laughs> Yeah. All the problems. I think we solved all the problems. <laughs> I think we got I feel like it's it's a nice it's nice to be reminded of the aspects that are independent of the bulwark of capitalism such that they are us just connecting. People being like, Yeah, it, it is a sales pitch, but it's also like coming from my heart. This book is so fucking good and I love it so much and I'm so proud of it. That's that's totally. not nothing. Yeah, that's, I mean that's my that's my big hope for as as things kind of become a little bit more normal in terms of getting a handle on the the, the, the pandemic and people actually being able to engage bookstores and in, in ways that they are accustomed to, and maybe some of the new tricks that bookstores have been able to come up with to do so in uh, alternative ways. But my hope is that yeah that we can start doing that again or is like last year was such a slog for everyone probably for publishers as well to <laughs> where your enthusiasm didn't really matter shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your enthusiasm got you through the day <laughs> well and it's like i mean it's like and think about you know we're kind of faced with all the booksellers that like we get it you guys are in this like horrendous slog the last thing you need is me being like hey brad let me tell you all about this great book you're like girl i got 900 packages to ship i do not need your shit in my email right now you know but i i think i that's definitely true but i i think like there's there's potentially like a great hunger on the book selling side as well as like on the customer side sure that for that 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 enthusiasm I and mean, we've we've been rewarded by figuring out ways fairly quickly to be able to be enthusiastic in a, in a kind of a virtual way. And, and customers have responded well to that. And I, it, it, it makes me hopeful that as people begin to engage stores again, that maybe the, you know, the, some of the, the, the joyless days of so many booksellers um, may be able to sort of phase change um, into, you know, more excitement. Cause I, I certainly know that the degree to which I am ever a good hand seller, it's really by way of like emotional manipulation because I'm so excited <laughs> about something. And I feel like that the customers like just doesn't, they don't want to let me down. Like they, <laughs> they saw like how happy I was talking about something or even like I nearly hyperventilated in my mask during the high, during the holidays and like the person ended up buying them all. She's like, this guy's going to like die <laughs> selling me this book. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that people will be so hungry for that again, that, uh, uh, that we can, we can do it. And ideally that the stuff we're selling isn't shit, Yeah. So. <laughs> which I, I never assume is not the case. I mean, amen. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you both. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Yes. It's gone 
longer than I thought it would. All the good ones do. They do. They do. <laughs> I miss talking to book people. You know. I know. So uh, soon we will all share the same physical space and a drink or two, all on Red Hen's dime. <laughs> oh no! Actually, yes, we'll do it on on oh, red we'll hens. Oh, we'll we'll let's make red, let's make red hen pay for it. Yeah, well, where's the red hen bubble system? Oh so. my god! All right, well, <laughs> well but uh, stay stay safe, Christina. I hope you don't develop any uh, side effects. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll find out in the morning if I actually got vaccinated or not. If it was <laughs> a weird, weird cocktail of germs that they gave me. <laughs> Drink lots of water, Christina. That's my recommendation. My professional recommendation. <laughs> Hope to see everybody in, what is it, Cincinnati? Is that where we're going next year? Yeah. Have they announced that that's where it's going to be? Yeah, yeah. They, we, I had a conference thing today. Uh, and they okay, talked I about figured it, it would Cincinnati. be. I'm going to get my freaking chili. I'm, I'm going to get my chili. I, I, I know Cincinnati <laughs> like the back of my fucking hand. So you all will be regaled by, you know, the, the best waffle houses around and, uh, aren't they uh, known for like some weird spaghetti chili Is oh that yeah weird? yeah I, I will take you to the best cincinnati's chili place not not like the, the not not ones. the corporate shit we're going to go to the indie <laughs> cincinnati chili place so and like we, not the olive garden of spaghetti not chili. the olive garden of cincinnati chili no you will you will have indie indigestion so okay amazing <laughs> all right thank, thank you so much yeah thank you guys. Well, great Bye. I wish I was a mole in the ground. Yes, I wish I was a mole in the ground. If I was a mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down. And I wish I was a mole in the ground.